Thank you for hanging out for this episode of The Card Table. I'm super grateful to be here with you. Let's get after it. Gratitude. On that 400 trillion to one thing, I'm grateful. This is cool. Like, life is good. Life is good. Like, Holy cow, it's been a hot minute, but welcome back to the card table. I'm super grateful to be here with you. As your host, this is Jason Bastine. Super pumped about today's episode. We've got Ryan Nolan on today. And Ryan is a card collector. He's a sports card YouTuber. You can find him on Twitter at breakout cards that's breakout cards underscore you can find them over at youtube on breakout sports ryan knows his stuff when it comes to the baseball game we talk a ton of baseball on this episode he's been collecting his whole life his dad owned a sports card shop i don't want to spoil all the fun but we talk modern vintage a lot of vintage we talk about predictions for the upcoming season so we we cover the whole gambit we talk a lot about the sports card shows going on right now and how much fun we're having going to those things. That's a lot about what Ryan do, does over on his YouTube channel. So please go follow him at Breakout Cards underscore on Twitter and check out Breakout Sports. Welcome, Ryan Nolan. Great name, by the way. I'd like to welcome Ryan Nolan from Breakout Sports to the card table. He has a channel on YouTube with Breakout Sports. Uh, Ryan and I linked up. We're going to talk a lot about baseball today, both the 2021 upcoming season, a little bit of vintage baseball. And then Ryan, you spent some time in Dallas this last weekend at, uh, the Dallas card show and definitely want to talk card shows because I'm a huge proponent of card shows and, uh, can't wait to see more of them because I think there needs to be more of them. So Ryan, welcome to the card table. Glad to have you here and can't wait for our conversation. Hey, thanks for having me. So let's start, I guess. Dallas. Um, was that your first time in Dallas? No. So this was, I think, my third time at the Dallas Card Show. I first yeah. went to the show last year. I think they had a November show. And it's scaled so much since then. Uh, okay. Last year when I was at the show the first time, they couldn't even fill up the first room. There's a lot of empty space in the back. Um, a lot of empty tables still. This time they had the full room filled up, rooms before filled up, and even an overflow room that was pretty much filled up. Uh, to Unreal. the room with dealers and everything. So I heard there was like 600 dealers there this last time. Yeah, there was. I mean, there was so many dealers. And I went to the national, I think it was 2019, the last one. It was okay. very, uh, very close to that, like with dealer wow. numbers. Uh, there's so many tables to go through. You had to pretty much go through it fast, see if you spotted anything, and then go to the next table. Do do laps, do rounds. It's a oh, absolutely. an it's event a, it's a in and of itself then just to make it make it through the whole the whole tour, huh? Yeah, it's fun to see at the end of the day how many miles you ended up walking uh, just around the showroom and everything like that. And then if you see a dealer that you have cards that you want, but you're not 100% sure, you have to go back and navigate and find their table. That's always fun to do. Yeah, you almost need a, need a map to mark it off. I do that too, that like you get in the door, you go, everybody checks out like the first table, right? Like whoever gets those tables right by the door, they are the, that's the busy spot that you want to be at. I was listening to the card talk guys and they're like, yeah, we got buried way in the back. And I'm like, that's, that's <laughs> pretty humorous like kind of you know for who those guys are and in the hobby and everything and that's their audience and their reach and it was like ah that's uh yeah just goes to show you you know first come first serve and who gets those those cream of the crop tables i think kind of sets the pace for the show a lot of times 
It really does. Um, and especially if those better dealers up front, you just get that first reaction, like, damn, that's their inventory and things. I like one of the dealers I talked to that, that was over at Dallas had probably two, $3 million display and was put in one of the side rooms and it was just a shocker. Huh? Yeah. That's, I've been watching some of the videos, yours. Uh, you had a great video out there, uh, that you put out there on the 14th. I think that was awesome to see uh, great videography. I like the music and like the tour Thank aspect you. of it as well as some of the, the conversation. I think you guys did a great job. It was really, and I mean, I, I'm from Minnesota and like the, the card show I was at this weekend, you know, there, there was no million dollar tables by, by any means. <laughs> and uh, yeah, seeing some of the, the displays and display cases. And I mean, it's astonishing. Uh, I, I'm not sure I'm like a huge fan of like the stacks of cash, but like, that's just where we're yeah. in the hobby too, you know? Oh, like, I don't disagree. It's, it's the people, it's what, what happened. I've noticed in the hobbies, a lot of sneakerheads are now into the sports cards. They went from sure. uh, holding all the basketball boxes with all the uh, sneakers. And then now they're going to buy cards because less space and easier to flip. And because of that, I think you're getting a lot of the basketball culture where it's showing off a lot of money, showing off watches. Like if you go around the show, a lot of new dealers, I noticed, (laughs) have have really, really expensive watches, really expensive jewelry. And going back to card shows, I've been going to shows probably for 15 years or so. You didn't see that. You just have your normal uh, guys just showing up with jeans, a shirt, a cheap shirt, and they still have like $100,000 worth of cards. But now because you have the influx of people um, with the basketball culture, now you're starting to see a lot younger dealers out there, a lot of dealers with money, especially from the West Coast. Very interesting. Or were you a sneakerhead, or you've you've been a a card collector no. your life? So your life, I've man. been a I've been a card collector my entire life. I mean, I started when I was I don't even know. My dad took me to flea markets when I was like two, three years old. <laughs> awesome stuff. <laughs> so so your your dad was a, is a card collector as well. Yeah. So he actually owned a card shop uh, before I was born and ended up okay. selling that. Um, he really regrets selling those cards because he had a Andy Pafco number one from the tops 1952 set, which he said would probably grade like an eight to a 10 today, a uh, 55 Kofax, which he said it was probably the nicest Kofax he's ever seen Yeah, and a few other cards. And he just really regrets it because if he had those cards today, he'd be like, I'm done. I'm retiring. It's all good. Yeah. The, the Kofax, I know those, uh, well, vintage, we'll definitely talk some vintage today. That's, that's one of the things that struck me. I like you're, you went in Dallas, you were hunting vintage cards. Like, yeah. What's the, I mean, like you were saying, basketball seems to be the bee's knees right now. Everybody's, you know, playing the basketball game, but, uh, you're kind of a, a kindred soul in that sense where you, you, you're, you're out there looking for vintage baseball, uh, Brett McGrath from Stacking Slabs always talks, you know, go left when everybody else is going right. Is that is that intentional? Is that what you grew up collecting? Like what you got a Christy Mathewson, which is a, a dream vintage card. I'm, you know, for many, like that's amazing. But how come you're collecting vintage? And what what why are you hunting vintage, Ryan? You seem, you know, age-wise, I'm not saying you maybe there you got like some secret sauce there, but you appear very young for a vintage collector. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. So I just turned 23 recently. Um, but I've been collecting vintage my entire life and okay. my philosophy on it is if you look at the print run of cards from nineties all the way to today. Um, there's tens and thousands of those cards and I like comparing the stats of older players to today as well. You look at a player like Juan Soto, everyone really, really hypes him up like, Oh, Juan Soto is so good. You go back in the twenties and thirties, you look at a player like Mel Ott who had a very similar statistics with Juan Soto and you can get a 1933 Gaudi for the same cost as a one Soto card. Now tell me what's harder to find 
and what's harder to replace a Juan Soto PSA 10 from 20 to 18 update or yep. a Mel Ott 1933 Gaudi, which guys, I don't have a Mel Ott yet. So please don't buy them all up yet, but um, <laughs> that's not, a, that's not the play you're recommending. <clears throat> no, 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 right. <laughs> don't recommend it at all. But yeah. what's harder to replace either getting a Mel Ott in your collection or a Juan Soto. And the thing with a lot of these younger guys, they're going to have three, four, five good seasons. But if you look at the history of baseball, there's a lot of players that start off really, really hot and then die down over time. There's players yeah. that win two MVP awards like Dale Murphy aren't even enshrined in the Hall of Fame. There's a lot of players that have 60 to 70 war, which is that milestone for the Hall of Fame who still aren't even in there. Like you take it, for example, Scott Rowland, who had a really good career. I think he ended up like 65 or 70 war, which if you look at today's standards, what people are investing in prospecting, that's really, really good. He's still not in the Hall of Fame and he only got what, 30 or 40% on the first ballot he was in there. Yeah. I think he'll make it, but he's a later ballot. Um, but people are following the hype rather than looking at the statistics of the players. You need to go back there and see what someone's performed over time. A legend's cards, if a market crashes, yeah, but there's always going to be a demand for those cards. Someone's always going to be like, dang, I want to have a Christy Matthewson. I want to have a Cy Young. I want to have a Walter Johnson card. If Juan Soto goes out in the next two, three seasons, his demand's going to fall out really, really bad, even though you know, his first two or three years have been really good. So I look at the play as vintage. There's a lot more scarcity compared to the modern cards. And on yep. top of it, like, I I just love the vintage designs. The today's cards just don't compare. Yeah. You know, so I, I don't have like a, a stark vintage collection. Most of our, our old school collection was like junk wax era, eighties, nineties, two thousands, a little bit. We kind of stopped collecting then. So like, that's not, I guess what I'm saying is I'm going back to that. Like I started to, you know, once I got back to the hobby, I was looking at like the nineties stuff, getting things that I, I couldn't get as a kid. And then, and I started looking at the marketing exactly what you're saying. I mean, don't get me wrong. Tatis, Soto, Acuna, the power trio, right? They're, they're outstanding, outstanding young players. Um, but the same analysis you just said, nobody is going to touch Cy Young. Nobody is going to touch Christy Mathewson. And I started going through the all-time war list and looking at like where current players rank against uh, the all-time greats. And what people don't really realize is you got to have to have a decade plus of dominant baseball. Like Trout, Trout could scrape the top 20 by the time he's done, but he's not there yet either. Like he, no. he's and below him. It, it's okay, a, it's Kershaw. a gaping abyss. Of, Kershaw would be the best players. Uh, sorry to interrupt, but. Kershaw would be your best pitcher. And if you look at how well he's dominated baseball, he's only like, I think 70 or 80 war. And he's been the best pitcher in baseball since pretty much 2008. We talked about 12 seasons where he's completely dominated everyone on the Dodgers, won multiple Cy Youngs. And if you look at Scherzer, who people would say is the second best or Verlander, they're both that like 65 war, which is an entry level hall of famer. So it's, it's just interesting looking back at these past players uh, combined with their war, their strikeouts, their wins. Um, just you have to look at everything. You can't look at one stat to compare a player, but people are hyped up over a player that's going to be a lower end hall of famer potentially. And you have to look back throughout the history and see there's over a hundred years of baseball. I mean, heck the, one of the cards I picked up recently was a 1887 old judge. So that's really, I have, saw that. That was really cool. You have 140 years of card collecting of players. Just don't focus on 2019 or 2020 cards. You can go back there and look at other players and research the game. So from a, you know, and there's many eras, there's pre-war, there's 
vintage, you know, from post-war to 1980s, kind of where I see the number being drawn. Everybody can argue about what, what vintage really means these days. Sometimes I see vintage <laughs> as like 80s and 90s basketball. So, you know, in the vintage, yeah. <laughs> it's like ultra modern, <laughs> modern vintage is just right. Kobe is vintage. It's like, okay, whoa, yeah. whoa, whoa, whoa. Like that's making me feel a little too old a little too soon here. But I guess my, my question is who's, Give me, give me three names you think that are criminally, maybe not criminally, but let's go criminally undervalued in the in the vintage market today, baseball. Yeah, so number one I'm going to say is Frank Robinson. So you look at Frank Robinson's stats, he has about, I think, 110 war, has accomplished a lot as a player, kind of similar to like an Albert Pujols or Miguel Cabrera type career. And I just don't see people really talking about him. He has a 1957 rookie card. Beautiful um, card. It, it yeah. really is. I picked one up a few months ago, I think, um, but just it's really amazing with that. And if you compare them to today's sluggers, right, you can get a Pools card and Pools is more expensive. Now, don't get me wrong. I think Pools is a great player, but if you look at the print runs and the quality of how many higher end Frank Robinson cards there is to Albert Pools, you're going to have a tougher time finding a nice Frank Robinson, especially since it was in 57. So you're looking at 60 plus years with that card if it's still mm-hmm. around out there. So that's my number one. I would say number two. And with vintage right now, too, you're saying like a high, a high grade. But like with vintage too, like it's so you don't hard. need a high grade. You don't. Like there's there's enough pricing range there. Like you were saying, the Kofax, if it's a PSA and above. I mean, these are big buku dollar cards. You're swapping those for Kobe autos these days. But you know, like you don't need that cream of the crop either. Like I, I I'm just getting started in vintage, and I love targeting low grade vintage. I mean, I've got a collection of really bent up PSA one type Mickey mantles. And you know what? That's that so is good. amazing. Cause there's a story behind them. You know, they kind of smell different. They feel, <laughs> they feel different. Like there's magic to those cards. They've lived. And, and I don't get that same feeling when I look at a modern day prism card. It's just, it's just not there. They're, they're beautiful in their own right. All due respect, but this is just the perfect example where there's so many different niches in the, in the hobby to, to explore and to collect. I think that teach their own. Yeah, but I cut and, you off number two and three of their of your underrated. No worries. And I was going to say with like the newer stuff, I don't think all new stuff is junk. Um, I know a lot of vintage collectors will say, "Oh, I don't want to collect any new cards at all." I mean, with my own personal collection, I do have a lot of newer cards. The yeah. thing is, if you go after the base cards, they're out there everywhere. You have to go after autograph cards or limited number cards. And unfortunately, with the hobby where it's going towards right now, I think they're making too many variations of cards. Now, yep. you, I mean, in the past, let's say 2010, uh, that's kind of like when I started getting into modern stuff, really, um, you had like the gold bordered, which was back then number to 2010, and then you had yep. the black bordered, which is number to 59, and then you had the one of one. And I think those were the only main variations in the top set. And then 2011 brought in the diamonds anniversary with Mike Trout, which don't really want to talk about that because I had a huge mistake collecting that. Oh, but no. <laughs> I'll, I'll, t- I'll, t- I'll, t- I'll tell you about it right after uh, go over the vintage, but after that, you know, Tops slowly started, and Tops and Panini both, or pretty much all their companies, started adding a lot more variations. And now there's like 20 or 30 cards now to complete a rainbow in a set versus in the past when there's only maybe three or four. So I think we're getting into an era where there's just way too many parallels. You see all these people having like five or six different colors of a card. And it's like, which one do you want to really go after? They're all numbered. And it just starts causing a little bit of confusion, especially long-term value with that. Um but number two, yeah. as a player that I think is really criminally underrated, is Yogi Berra. And a lot of people know him for the Yankees legend. Uh, if you guys don't know Yogi Berra, he's a catcher who won 
uh, 10 or 11 world series with the Yankees and as a coach. Um, but he's also the second or third best catcher of all time. And his rookie cards of 48 Bowman officially. Um, mm-hmm. but I'm looking at like his early tops years. They're just so dirt cheap for what he's accomplished. He has the New York Yankee legacy. He has 10 rings. And on top of that, right. He's the second or third best catcher of all time. His prices are criminally underrated. He fits pretty much every criteria except for that he's a catcher. And for some reason in baseball, catchers are the very, very yeah. low end of the totem pole. Like one of my things I'd say would catcher. be. <laughs> they are. <laughs> right. Like, one of my outside my top three, another one I'd say would be Johnny Bench because he's the best catcher of all time. His stuff is still criminally underrated. But just looking at Yogi Berry, he fits so many check marks. New York Yankees, 10. There you go. The second year bench. Yep. Love that card. Yeah, he sits right there. Like I say, I was a catcher, but I like how he's got the that, that picture of the glove up. That's the second year, the 69. His yep. rookie year was 68, the same as, as Nolan Ryan's. But yeah, I think Bench is definitely up there, you know, undervalued along with, with Yogi. Yogi is incredible. I mean, you talk about like half the baseball quotes that exist today are Yogi Berraisms as well. So kind of, you know, credit where credit's due. I, I agree. Who's so the top three catchers while we're at it? Yogi, Johnny Bench, Joe Mauer. Yeah. No. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I put Joe Mauer there. Probably Pudge. I know. Pudge, I know he has yeah. a lot. I know he has a lot of steroid allegations. I my view on steroids, like everyone back then, pretty much used steroids, even if they say yeah. they didn't. Let's I just think say it. <laughs> so it, if you put if you take away the steroid allegations, I'd put Pudge as number three. He's incredible. You know, he was my he was my hero growing up, and his I think his his pop time right his mid to second base pop time is like unrivaled and always like the gold standard for all catchers. I saw Molina recently, Yadi taunting a taunting a runner to, to I steal saw that. like that's awesome. Like that's probably the, the best breakdown. modern day catcher defensively, you know. Yeah, I, offensively Absolutely. Yadi's got his ups and downs. He's definitely a great offensive catcher. He's what you need out of a catcher offensively for sure. And something that baseball really hasn't been tracking yet. And I wish there was really a statistic for it. I haven't done a lot of research into super, super advanced stats, but um, like framing with catchers and how they control the pitchers. Because if you think about it, that I don't, I don't know if all the managers call pitches anymore for catchers, especially at the major league level. I know when I was playing travel ball, some of them did. Uh, some yeah. catchers did it on their own. Um, I know baseball is weird now with analytics and everything with that. But the catchers control the game. They let the pitchers know, okay, throw it inside or outside, up, down, fastball, yeah. curveball, changeup. And since they're controlling the game, they have a major aspect of it just as much as a pitcher does. Because if they tell a pitcher to throw a meatball down the middle, you're looking at a home run 400 feet plus. So the catcher now controls that element of the game along with framing, right? If something's a ball, but they frame it as into a strike, that can change a game, especially if two strikes and your number three or four hitter. So there's a lot of more advanced stats. I think are going to come out within the next decade or two with catchers. And it'll be kind of interesting to see uh, if any of that applies to some of your historic catchers, let's say thirties, forties, fifties, and everything like that, or just the modern day era. I love all that stuff. I think pitching ninja is doing for pitching, like it just leaps and bounds on social media, what Rob is doing. And then there's a fellow out there named the catching guy that does a little bit of the catching style videos like that. And uh, I love that stuff. I just eat that up on, on Twitter because it, it shows the value that a lot of folks wouldn't recognize otherwise, you know, from Rob and the pitching ninja is showing like the different pitches and grips and the, the nuances of the game that 
were, were left to the experts hidden behind closed doors for years are now just like right there on Twitter for everybody to see. And I think that only accentuates the game. And um, I don't know. I, I hope there's like an NBA top shot for, for <laughs> baseball sometime soon, both pitching, all that stuff. Like let's That'd show so it all. Cool. I think that's just a, a great opportunity for baseball to better promote their, their stars, which they're not really doing a great job of, you know, that's, that's part of like the people like talk about the baseball card market and basketball just gets so much promotion. It's right in your face. The games are big games all the time. ABC, you know, it's just, it's there baseball. We've got the long season and and it's, it's, it's a, it's like a marathon, right? It's not, it's not a sprint. And so I think that's tough for some people to, to stick around for the length of the game. I know they're doing some things to try to speed that up, but, for me and what it's always been, I think teaching people the nuances of baseball. Why is somebody standing there on that count? Why are they throwing that pitch on that count? What's the hitter up to the pace of the game? There's all these little like games within the games going on. I think the more that we can show those and talk about them, like the more fans there will actually be to baseball. I agree. And, you know, if you go back into the home run era, everyone loved, you know, McGuire, everyone loves Sosa. Everyone loved Canseco Bonds hitting home runs out of the park. And we saw they changed the ball recently um, to make it more lively. And now they're apparently deafening the ball, which is kind of interesting with that. But um, I think you need to have the, as much as I am as a a big pitcher fan, because I'd rather collect pitchers than hitters. um, You need to have the live ball because people love it. Anytime there's a Stanton home run, right? It's televised everywhere because he hits an absolute moonshot. Same with Aaron judge and yep. like the prospect, Joshua Mears, he hit one. It was like 117 miles an hour. Everyone talked about it nonstop about the line drive off of his bat on Twitter and on YouTube for days. Um, you just need to get back into that era where guys are hitting home runs, but also kind of just having pitchers dominate. I, I really do not like the pitch count that's being implemented by a lot of teams where they pull a pitcher now at 80, yeah. 90 or hundred pitchers or hundred, not pitchers, but hundred pitches. And if you guys who don't know playing baseball, like even growing up, I, I was a pitcher. I played a lot of travel ball. I'd throw 250 pitches a weekend, or if not more sometimes. And this is being as a 13 year old before developing into a full arm, like these major leaguers. And I know people are going to say the full on schedule. I'm from Florida. Everyone was playing baseball for 52 weeks down here. There was no yeah. breaks with that. And Personally, the reason why I think like pitchers arms are deteriorating is not because of the pitch count in the major leagues. I think what happens now is kids are throwing 100, 200 pitches when they're 10, 11, 12 years old, all the way till they're 18, 19 years old. And they're throwing curveballs and screwballs and anything else with that. And they're hurting their elbow rather than the major league pitchers when they're fully developed. And until major league baseball can figure out something with the youth um, and limiting pitchers and limiting this whole uh, like recruiting for triple or you triple SA teams or like AAU teams, that's always going to be an issue. Pitchers are going to be hurt. You look at the history of baseball, sure, pitchers get hurt. You have Koufax that's been hurt. You got Dizzy Dean that got hurt, right? You have pitchers like Johan Santana that get hurt recently. But all these pitchers don't get they, – they weren't fully out of the game. They don't have Tommy John surgeries like today. Now pitchers are getting Tommy John surgeries twice. They're Almost every starting pitcher that gets called up to the major leagues, you just have to expect they're going to get Tommy John surgery throughout their career. Um, in the past, that wasn't the case. Pitchers would be able to throw 20 years without any arm injuries. And I think it's just really from the youth being throwing way, way too many pitches between all the travel ball tournaments, all the showcases and everything like that. And major league baseball is doing absolutely nothing to stop that. Yeah, it's interesting. So I played ball. I'm going to show my age here, but I, I played 
high level Legion baseball, high school ball, amateur baseball after that. But I, you know, year 2000 is when I graduated high school. So like all that AAU travel team stuff was just starting then. And I, you know, admittedly, like it was hard for me. I left the game of baseball, I think in 2008, like stopped playing in that year. And it's hard for me to fathom it, but I was talking to a couple of folks, but like you, you have to be playing year round. You have to be in showcases. It's very stressful, very strenuous. Like I, I, I have trouble wrapping my head around it because I thought we played, we played 69 games the summer, uh, my, my junior year that, and that was post high school. So totally probably played a hundred games that year. But now as I understand it, like that's, that's nothing for, for, yeah. you know, tread on the tires these days. Like that is just, that's a low number. And I think that's really, really tough on kids. And and the other thing that it hurts is playing multiple sports. It's so good for people to play, play soccer, play baseball, play football, like having multiple sports that you're playing. I think that the showcases and the stress to like specialize takes away from that. Do you have some perspective, just perspective on it? Cause I, I didn't get to, you know, experience it firsthand. Yeah, and I was going to say another thing also with the showcases, MLB talks about like not having a lot of minorities in the game. And I think the showcases are a reason for it. Now, I came from middle class, but these showcases are five, six, seven thousand $7,000 just to play them on top of travel expenses, on top of getting time away from work. And for a lot of families, that's so hard to do, right? Unless mm-hmm. you own a, your own company or have your own schedule, like a high level executive, and you have that expendable income. You're not going to be able to say, hey, um, you know, we can't take you to these travel ball tournaments this summer. That's $10,000. We just don't have the money to afford that between travel and everything. And there's so many players that are probably really, really good coming out of low-income communities or middle-class communities that just never get to see that spotlight because of the cost out there and because of this culture that's been created where you have to go to all these showcases. You have to play every day on the weekend. So now you're not only you're hurting the player's arms, but now also you're hurting the players that just don't have the finances to be able to go to these tournaments. You know, you touched on something that's really close to my heart. You're, you're absolutely right. I think that the low income community is being cut off from access to that. And and don't get me wrong. There's other, there's other opportunities, but generally speaking, I think that this is a very huge issue that I would love to figure out a way to help solve that problem. I think that's one of the, it may sound silly, but it's actually one of the, like the things I want to work on in the future in my kind of the second half of my career. I want to, I want to help solve that, prevent that from that gap from happening. Cause it's absolutely deleterious to the long-term prosperity of the game. If, if kids simply don't have access to, to good teams, good coaches that are there to, help them grow from, from a young age all the way through high school and beyond. I mean, that's one of the things I will say, like I was struck by that my, my athletic director and, you know, coach, they didn't have the right plugins to the, the coaching network, the good old boy network of college recruiting. My sister's school did. And so like those guys all got, you know, they had college recruiters at their games. And meanwhile, like we had a competing high schools where we're in the same school district. And then in summer we played together. So it was always funny to me, like, but, but that was the recruiting season was done in high school for in Minnesota. So by the time that left, like the scouts were gone and summer ball was a whole different idea. So it it was like a big thing to me too, where like, you have to know people the you know, the good old boy club. And I think that kiss that goodbye. Cause like now the social media game, anybody can promote themselves. I forget his name, Nick, Nick Bitsko, maybe was it? 
who, you know, did a ton of self-promotion on social media, was able to get his name out and just like grew through the depth or the draft chart this year, ended up, really? you know, like middle of the round, first, first middle, middle of the first round pick where he wouldn't have been had he not like taken his, you know, upon himself to self-promote. He just wasn't there through the other more traditional means. So I, I look to that as a potential solution to showcase kids. You don't have to pay all that money. Anybody can get out there and, you know, self-promote, create their videos and put that stuff out on there on, on TikTok, Twitter, all those other social media channels. I'm sure there'll be more in the future. There definitely will be. And that's the beauty of social media now you will be able to connect. But I do want to talk about one of the points you were saying about like access to like the good old boy club and everything like that. Yeah. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens to the hobby in another uh, five or 10 years, because a lot of younger kids have no access to cards um, I, with the retail scores. So with all the different flippers going out there and I understand, right. If you can go out there and buy a $20 uh, optic box or prison box and sell it on eBay for a hundred dollars, I understand why you want to make 80 bucks, yeah. right? Yeah. But I think Tops and Panini and Upper Deck need to figure out a way to have kids be able to access the cards. Because throughout the history of sports cards, they were always marketed towards kids. Like if you look at the Gaudi set, they made chewing gum for kids so they don't have to focus with tobacco. Tops, they made the cards for kids in the 50s and 60s, right? It's always been about They care more about the gum. <laughs> exactly, right? So you have to cater towards the kids or else- your next generation is not going to be interested in it. And I know I've seen a lot of kids at card shows, but just think about how many kids are going out in retail right now and seeing no product, right? No. Oh, sorry. You can't, you can't buy this box. I mean, even the top series one, which should not be selling for more than $20. People are buying it just to flip it for $25 for $5. I just don't understand that you're going to put all the effort in for a $5 flip let the kids have some cards to go out there and they need to have the hobby continue. Otherwise what you're going to happen is you're going to have these 20 year olds that turn 30, turn 40, turn 50 and the hobby's going to die because you don't have that next generation coming up there buying cards. And you have the kids buying these cards, opening up, getting a few dollar cards here or there and being super excited and then saying, Oh, one day I want to get a Mike Trout auto or one day I want to get a Clayton Kershaw auto. And it's only upgraded that because yeah, you, if you don't, you're not, Exactly. If you don't, right, they're not going to go in and say, oh, I just want a Kershaw auto for a thousand bucks, a rookie auto. No, they, they're not going to do that in their 20s. They're going to say, oh, I don't care about cards, whatever. Let's talk about the upcoming season. So this is going to be in August. So the season's going to be baseball season. This is basketball season's winding down. Lots of um, uh, there, there's a lot of action to happen between baseball, basketball, football draft, somewhere in between here. I heard them talking about, I think the football draft is right around the next, uh, the next Dallas card show. So that could be interesting. Be. Um, what's going on with the next, with the 2021 season though? What are your expectations? I kind of want to do the full rundown of like the power trio prospects. Let's go through some predictions to have some uh, dialogue on this. What do you think? Okay. So I'll start with the power trio, but you're looking at Acuna, Tatis and Soto. So people might hate me, but I think Acuna is going to slack the season. I think Tatis is going to perform a little lower than people expect. And yeah. I think Soto is going to overperform. Um, what I look at when I look at prospects and younger players is I look at their eye first. And I think Soto has the best eye out of the three. I think Acuna still chases a lot of wild pitches. He is mm -hmm. a, he's a great player who could hit 35 home runs, but I think his batting average is going to be 260, 250 range. Um, Tatis there's not a large sample size. So a lot of people are really hyped on Tatis, but 
correct me if wrong, I don't think he's even played 162 games yet. And again, yeah. when you look at players over time, you need to have more of a sample size than 162 games to determine if a player is really good or not. Uh, people don't realize Tatis originally wasn't a high-end prospect. He came out of nowhere. Um, he was traded with that James Shields package um, mm-hmm. as a player that was added onto that. And he's done really, really well, right? His dad was a player as well. Uh, Tatis, guy who had two grand slams in one inning. Um, yeah. But, you know, Tatis could be the real deal. I just don't have enough data on it. And he's a West Coast compared to East Coast. So I don't really watch many West Coast games. Um, but Soto, looking at Soto, he got called up at age 19, he already dominated at age 19, has a really, really good eye that's way developed for his age, and people compare him to Ted Williams. And if anyone compares you to Ted Williams, that's it's high standards because a lot of people say he's the best hitter of all time. Yeah. Um, so if you're already getting Ted compared Williams. to Ted Williams at 21, 22 years old, I'm going to go with that for my pick from the big three. Yeah, I, you know, I, I agree with you. I'm a little higher on Acuna. I, I think he's got a, a solid chance at 40-40. My, my big concern with Tatis is his durability. He plays shortstop, which is a really hard position on your body. You're moving, you're shifting. Like, he's an athletic dude, but he's also, like, really tall and almost borderline lanky for, for the shortstop position. So I'm worried long-term about how, how his body holds up. And even in the short term, like you say, he hasn't the, – the sample size isn't big, but I'm, I'm shocked. He seems to be, like – Soto's, like, the quiet guy – in the whole yeah. conversation card value is about appropriate, you know, Soto's at the top right now, but like Tatis from a liquidity perspective, being at the car show last week. And I don't know, did you see the same thing in Dallas? Like Absolutely. people are slinging Tatis like no other right now. Is that what you observe in Dallas? Yep. And I was able to trade a lot of my Tatises away for the stuff I wanted. So I was kind of happy with that, but people are absolutely insane over Tatis right now. I love them. Don't get me wrong. I got some, I got a bunch of stuff, you know, so sent in to get graded and stuff like that. Some SPs, you know, refractors from tops, Chrome. Um, I, I think he's a great player. I, I just can't quite, you know, if we're going to compare the, the, the power trio, that's, I, yeah. I think we just leave it there. They're, they're all that, great in their own. They're all, right, all sorry. They're all great players. It's just hard to compare three players from the same exact time. It's like comparing like Ted Williams, Mickey Mantle out there like, and William and Willie Mays, the big three from back then. Are they going to be the up the next three like that? I don't know, but you never know, right? They've only been playing since 2018, so it's hard to say. I'm just grateful we get to watch talent like is in baseball today on both sides of the ball, from pitching and the hitting side. I, I mean, there you look at the radar guns and like the velocity oh, game. Absolutely, it's it's ridiculous. I'm watching Dustin May throw a two seamer that it's unhittable. It, it, like it's 99 miles an hour and it literally cuts back. It's a screwball, but it's 99 miles an hour. It's Could you I've imagine if these, like if guy. these players played in like the fifties or sixties, some of these modern era pitchers, how well they would do back then. <laughs> it's a totally <laughs> like we, different style, right? Like, I love watching like the, like old school games and like, I've been oh, going yeah. back and watching every documentary I can get my hands on. I was watching a Mickey Mantle one the other night, you know, and it's, it was a different game back then, you know, definitely, but I've also heard the like the velocity. It, it, I, I got to look more into this, but I've heard the way we're measuring pitch speed today differs significantly from the way it was measured 20 years ago. In the sense that most of the older radar guns they used to measure were measuring um, closer to home plate, 
versus from the pitcher's hand where the guns are capable of measuring today, just from a distance perspective and how far they could actually measure the pitch speed. It could make four or five miles an hour difference, but I've just heard that like the velocity, I guess, back then was comparable to where it is today. Gotcha. No, I didn't know about that. That's kind of interesting. So if that's comparable, I I wonder how fast Nolan Ryan was throwing because people thought he threw a hundred back then. Was he the Chapman back then? He held, I think before Chapman took it, like the official, you know, radar gun reading. I think he held it at like 103, 104 for a long time. And, and so to think about then, like too. that could have been three, four miles an hour faster in actuality. And I think there's Damn. like some like physical limitation as to like how far, how hard a ball can be thrown. It's like 108, 109 even. I'm not sure. But physics of pitching is is a fascinating thing. So who do you think from like a, the Cy Young perspective, like what pitchers are you keeping your eye on? Because there's a wealth of young talent, prospects, but you mentioned Kershaw earlier. Who's taking home the Cy Young in both leagues this year? Oof. So National League, I'm either thinking it's going to be Walker Bueller or Jack Flaherty. And I'm going with the young ones this year. Walker Bueller already plays with the Dodgers, really established team. His pitch peripherals are really, really good. Same with Is Jack he like Flaherty. like the fifth starter in their rotation, by the way, with the Dodgers this year? I mean, that's like the most ridiculous rotation in the history of baseball. I think they officially announced him as number two. When you have Bauer as number three behind you, who won the Cy Young last year, it's pretty insane. Yeah. But Bueller is just, his stuff is really, really developed nicely for how young he is. And the same with Flaherty. Uh, Last year, I don't really count for Jack Flaherty. If people don't really follow the season last year, the St. Louis Cardinals stopped just indirectly in the middle of the season because of a COVID outbreak. And for pitchers, it's all about routine. It's all about going out there and pitching every fifth game, especially if you're the number one pitcher on the team. And they couldn't even practice in the middle of the season because everyone had to be quarantined because of the outbreak on there. So you're going to stop a player in the middle of the season and then, okay, come back and play games right away. And if you look at his stats, you take out one or two games, he still looked pretty good. I know the the numbers are kind of ballooned. If you look at baseball reference, we take out one or two games, which happened right after the COVID outbreak, those first two weeks, he had really solid numbers even after uh, coming off that. And his run at the end of the 2019 season, was amazing. It was like a one point, five or two ERA. I can't, I don't remember the exact numbers, but for that second half, I thought he was going to come away with the Cy Young award right then. And there. just, he looked like a Bob Gibson type situation with him out there. And yeah. I think one of those two pitchers are the go-tos now for the Cy Young. I think they're going to battle it out the next five or six years. Um, you'll see another battle between aces and it'll be Flaherty and Bueller out there. Now on the yeah, AL side, stud, and he's got some offense to, you know, help him win some games this year too. So absolutely that, that saying offense with Arenado and there's plus you have Yadier Molina behind the plate calling your pitches. So that helps a lot. Oh yeah. I mean, so developed out there and now on the AL side of things, that's going to be kind of tough. Um, but I have two picks with that. Um, I'd say the number one, it's pretty obvious though. It, I think it's going to be Shane Bieber again, just because the central division is always pretty weak overall. And Shane Bieber has really, really good stuff. Another young pitcher with that. Um, but if I was going to throw a random pick out there that I think could do well is Luis Patino, the pitcher the Rays got from San Diego. So Luis Patino was a top 10, top 15 prospect and absolutely dominated the minor leagues. And this is before the Rays even started working with them. So now you have them in the Rays franchise, which are known to fix pitchers and improve their velocity, improve their spin rate, improve their breaking balls. Um, 
do I think he's going to officially win his first year as a rookie? No, but I think he's another player that could sneak into Cy Young in two or three years. Um, but he could have a breakout season. But my pick would be Shane Bieber on the AL. Solid. Absolutely solid. Uh, you were talking about a prospect there with Patino. And who else should we be watching out for? Um, you know, guys like Dominguez, he's not coming up this year. No. Obviously. We all know Wander Franco. He's back in the minors now. So buy yeah. the dip, everybody. Like, you know, <laughs> take the 20% discount or whatever you can find on Franco for when he actually comes up and starts breaking in the majors. For all sakes and purposes, that guy's hit tool is he, unreal. He, is. He, he's, he looks better than Soto right now. And yeah, it's not coming just from a Rays fan because I'm from the Tampa area. But <laughs> if you look at how little he's striked out in the minor leagues, his eye is way advanced for what age he is. I mean, he only struck out single-digit times his first year in rookie ball. That's unheard of. That's pretty unreal. Yeah, and it's uh, been consistent at all, all the levels. Although he had what's he double A? He didn't play much triple A yet. Or no, I think he's double A. Yeah. So he's he's the real deal on that side of things. I think he does get called up this year, probably after the service time manipulation. All teams yeah. do it, but yep. I think, but it's gonna be hard, you know, as a Rays fan. Either Patino or Wander Franco, I think, have the shot. I think if Wander Franco gets called up, if he even does above average because of all the hype, he'll win rookie of the year, especially because that's kind of the culture we're in right now where hype is over statistics. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think he's your AL winner. Even you still have Kellenic that's going to come up for uh Seattle, but I just think the hype wins for Wander Franco. And if not, I think Luis Patino is going to come out there and pitch really, really well for the race. Um, Kellen, the, did Kellen get sent down yet or is he, they're, they're going to keep him up? I don't remember. I know the leak thing that they were talking about. Oh, we're going to do service manipulation with them, but yeah, it, it, they got to get rid of that. That is such a, like, yeah, it it, it's a long enough climb to get to the major leagues. And then you get then shoved back down just because teams want to have control of you longer. Like, can we think of something a little less, like less progressive? I mean, it, it takes money out of the player's pockets. It, it's just, it's a bad system. They need 100% agree with that. I think that'll be something that bring, that they bring up in the hearings next year before they sign a new contract up between the players and yeah. the owners. Um, I think that's something that they'll be able to work out. And from like a baseball perspective, I hate it because think about it. You have an extra two months that are taken away from rookie campaigns. People look at all these rookies and it's like, oh man, this guy hit 35 home runs, batted this. It's like, well, just imagine they had another two months, right? You might've had 40 or 42 home runs a lot more stats and you look at them later on with that instead of their 130 or 120 games played. So it kind of ruins it from the, the stat perspective for someone that looks at the rookie years or looks at early years for these players. Absolutely. Who else are we looking out for? So we talked Franco, we talked uh, Kalanick. What else? Yeah. Who so else? I, I, should say. I don't know if he's going to get called up this year, but I really, really like CJ Abrams and okay. I bought into him about a year ago CJ Abrams is he hits for average has decent power. Not he's not going to hit you 40, 35 home runs, but he can still hit you 20, 25 home runs. But the thing I like about him is he's fast as anything. Remember the hype years ago about Billy Hamilton on how fast he could run. Yeah. Well, CJ Abrams is just as fast as him and he can hit for average. He can hit 330, 340 along with having some power and good defense. So you have one of these rare five-tool players out there. And again, he's playing for San Diego, who already has an absolutely loaded farm system and a loaded team themselves. So he's going to get 
mentored by like Tatis, mentored by Machado, uh, mentored by Hosmer and these other older players already. And he fits nicely in their lineup. He could be a really, really scary player out there. I mean, if you have him on the base path, wrecking everyone like a Henderson type player, and then you have Tatis and Machado right after him in that lineup, that's pretty scary. Where's he going to play? He's a shortstop though. Tatis is that short or do they move Tatis to third or something? What do you think? Um, well, third base is going to be Machado's and they have him for 300 yeah. million. So he's staying there. Tatis is shortstop. I know they recently signed someone for second base, but I think they put Abrams in second base or the outfield. I think okay. personally, I'd rather have him in second base. Um, I don't remember who they signed at second base, but I'd put him there. And then you have Hosmer at first. Um, but they are a scary team, especially with their minor leagues. And even earlier, I was talking about Joshua Mears, how he has a lot of power. Guess what? He's in San Diego also. So they have like a Stanton or a judge type player there as well as CJ Abrams. And I don't think Mears is going to get called up this year. He's still really young. He only had rookie ball. But the fact that they have this loaded system and these aren't even their number one or two prospect. Oh, CJ Abrams is, but um, Mears is two or three. You know what? That, that slipped past me too. Mackenzie Gore too. With their pitching staff that they already have, it's just, it's insane what they've done. They're able to make trades without giving up the farm system. Yeah. Adding that. I was talking, I'm like, where did you Darvish go? He went to San Diego. Yeah. I, 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 I forgot about Mackenzie Gore for a second with their minor leaguers and Mackenzie Gore was, is the number one hype pitcher for minor leaguers right now. He's yeah, going to get called six, up this year like, too. He should, he should be in that rotation. I think, I mean, you got Darvish that what a great mentor to have, you know, with Darvish and his 50 billion pitches that he throws and, you know, Small. Gore's pretty standard. He Gore's kind of gotten away with like his natural talent, I think though, so far. So it'll be interesting to see how he fits into the major leagues. I think that's where they've kind of held him back a little bit because he's got to develop more, um, more pitches, I guess, to, to survive as a starter in the pros. I think he got it. I'd, I'd be a little bit more worried about Chris Paddock. He has good stuff, but he has a fastball and changeup. That's it. Yeah. Really, really good changeup, but you need to have that third or fourth pitch. Yeah, there's the – I mean, I'm just scrolling down the top prospects, 100, top 100 list here. and oh, I'm kind of curious. I mean, it's on fire. Like everybody in the top 20 is a, a stud. Let's they see. got Tor- they got Torkelson number three right now. Does he see the pros this year, or is he probably just hanging out in the minors? It'll be his first year of professional baseball. So, I don't think he gets caught up this year. I think he'll get caught up next year. The Tigers they still have Matt Manning, and they also have um, God. What's the other pitcher's name that they just had? Um, Casey Mize. Yeah, Casey Mize. So it depends when they get called up because we're going to call up everyone at once, especially that young core. Um, let's see. Yeah, then you just got to pay him sooner, right? <laughs> yeah. Nate Pearson will get called up. He already got called up last year. Dylan Carlson's already getting called up. Andrew Vaughn is sixth though. Looked really, really good for Miami, but there's a little bit of concerns about innings. Yeah, Luciano, Luciano will be number one prospect. Give it some time. He's yeah, I, I need to watch right more now. video on Luciano. I've heard a lot of good things. Mm-hmm. I, I'm hyped on Sixto. I like his mentality out there. Um Who's Oh, Dylan Carlson. I think he's in a really good spot now. He's going to be able to hit lower in the lineup. They kind of thrust him right into the top of that lineup last year. Now I've seen him hitting like seven, eight, even 
Like, wow, they can let him sit Crazy. back in the back half of that lineup, see more fastballs, and just relax a little bit. He's got an opportunity to have a huge year. Huge he does. And then um, I was going to ask about Adley Rutschman as well. What are your thoughts on Mr. Stud Catcher Adley? So I'm not a huge fan of him. And the reason why is he's already 23 years old before getting called up. And when you look at historic players and how well they've been developing, usually you want to look at the 19 and 20 year olds that get called up because they have a longer opportunity to accumulate stats. If you get called up 20 years old, you have the full 20 season, 21, 22, 23. It's four extra years compared to someone getting called up at 23. And if a player hits, let's say on average, 20 home runs and 150 hits, guess what? That's 80 home runs, 600 hits added to your totals. Now, another thing I don't like about Adley is he's a catcher and you look at catcher prices, Yogi Bear is cheap. Johnny Bench is cheap. Pudge Rodriguez is super cheap. Joe Maurer is cheap. There's not one catcher out there that's expensive. And it's it's a shame. I think Johnny Bench card should be a lot more expensive. Yogi should be a lot more expensive. But when you're talking about buying into prospects, are you going to buy into a catcher who plays less than 162 games, uh, significantly less, and is oh, already yeah, older? Or are you going to go out there and go after an 18 or 19-year-old that's towards the top of the list? I'd rather put my money on the 18 or 19 year old. Yeah. It's a good point with catchers too. They traditionally play what? 130 games. You know? Yeah. They, they it's grueling position. And it's weird because goalies in hockey are worth the money, right? Patrick Waugh worth a lot of money. You look at some of the other ones like Vasilevsky, his cards have been going up a lot and he's, he's yep. great for Tampa Bay. Um, so the goalies are good in hockey, but in baseball catchers who dictate the game as well, just aren't worth money. And I don't know why I think they should be worth money. I just don't think that there's a lot of hype behind them. A lot of people looking at catchers and going, dang, I really want a Johnny bench card, which they should, but just how the hobby is right now. Yeah, we can change that. <laughs> I picked up a <laughs> Absolutely. 1950 Johnny or a 1950 Johnny bench, a 1950 Yogi Berra recently, because it was just that like art nice. catcher card. It's just, it's gorgeous. It's like, it, when I think about catching, that is a, picture that defines catching um so i i think there's a lot of opportunity out there for catchers the 69 bench where he's crouched down glove up i mean it's so I, cool. I love photography in cards it's not just the you know fi- fancy shiny stuff it's like give me a good picture that like shows the sport as it should be shown i think those those cards hold a lot, at least in my perspective. Yeah. My opinion doesn't really matter, but <laughs> no, I'm in the same way. That that's why I love the 33 Gaudi set. Um, it just it has that classic Americana look with the players on there, and it's something that if you look at the set, you're always gonna remember what a Gaudi looks like. You look at some of the past releases with tops, like the last 10 years or so, they all kind of look the same at the end of the day. Yeah, they don't have the same passion, or like I just described it as magic. That like like a 65 tops baseball, like. That's a magical looking card. Even the 80 with like Henderson going out. It's like that card is beautiful. Like it is the design of it, how it fits with his po- batting pose, you know, batting stance, pose, whatever. Same thing. It's not posing. It's a batting stance. Um, it, it just, there's something extra special about that card and the angles that it shows. I think those things, yeah, like you say, it's just, it's kind of stale. Is that, I mean, that's kind of the competition thing too. I think now we're like, Tops doesn't have competition. They've got the license. Panini can make select and Don Ross, but there's no logos. It that really does detract from uh, the cards. I think we need we need some healthy competition. 
I think it all started from the junk wax era, though, when the, the production started getting cheaper. I don't think the companies turn back and say, oh, we want these thicker designs, the thicker card stocks. I mean, they do that with Heritage, which I, I like the Heritage brand, the cards mm-hmm. and everything like that, um, because they're based on, you know, past designs. But I think the junk wax era of real, the card companies realized that they can produce cheaper uh, junk wax or cheaper cards in general, and then uh, continue to produce them. People are still going to buy them. And I don't blame the companies, right? They realize that people are still going to buy the cards no matter what year after year. But man, I just love the legendary designs of the tops in the fifties. The the 54 set is one of my favorites out there. Just the taller cards, the two pictures on there, the first set with Ted Williams and everything. And just, I love that design from that year. You look back at 52, anytime you see a 52, you know, it automatically just because of the large, larger than life portraits and everything with that. You go back to the 59, the, the, the circle in the center with the player, you just look at the Bob Gibson rookie card and you're like, dang, this looks really nice. That pink is like, (laughs) it stands out, right? But nowadays I'm looking out for a Bob at this point. Uh, Yeah. It's a, it's a deep rabbit hole uh, to go down all that, all those beautiful cards. What are you working on right now? Do you have a project to set your building or a player run or anything you're working on? Right now, I'm just trying to get some of the legendary pitcher cards. So I'm still trying to find a Tom Seaver in a satchel page. And then going back, I need to get a Dizzy Dean from either 33 or 34 Gaudi. Um, still obviously want a Cy Young or a Walter Johnson, but those are kind of harder to come across, especially at card shows. Uh, this year, I made it a goal to try to find five legendary pitcher cards. So I wanted to get... Bob Gibson, which I cleared off really early in the year. Nice. Talk about that a little bit later. I picked up the Lefty Grove, which I was really, really happy about for the 33 Gaudi. And then two or three weekends ago, I finally got the Nolan Ryan rookie. And I was really, really happy about that. I actually got it from a subscriber that was setting up. So that was really cool. Um, Beautiful. But yeah, so right now I want to get some of those other cards. So talk about the Bob Gibson. This is kind of where I kind of like how hype is in the industry sometimes. So remember when the Tiger Woods cards were way overhyped and they were going for insane amount of money? Yeah, they like tripled up within a weekend. Yeah, so there's the Bay Area card show. I ended up trading two Tiger Woods rookies, a um, Steph Curry red prism. Don't you remember? It was like number to 299 or something. And then $100 cash and I got a Bob Gibson PSA 4 rookie. Beautiful. And Beautiful. I was like, this is perfect. Oh, and the and the, the piece that ended ended up the deal as well was... I think it was 2006 tops basketball. I don't remember the exact year they put celebrities in the, in the set. And there was a Carmen Electra refractor that I had. So the guy wanted the Carmen Electra refractor to pick up in the dollar box. Cause I was like, this is a funny card, right? <laughs> Threw that in and we got the deal for the Bob Gibson. So was that the same year that they did like Jay-Z? Yeah. Yeah. It's t- okay. 2006, right? Uh, 2005, I think. Gotcha. I, I don't know the up. basketball years on top of my head. Yeah, 2005. I picked up a couple Jay Z gold Bowman. He's in a, like a suit. I'm like, yeah, you got to have a Jay Z. Everybody needs a Jay Z. <laughs> you want to talk about maybe a lesson learned with uh, Mr. Mike Trout from 2011? I don't want to end on a bad note oh. here, so we're gonna have to come back around to it. But let's talk about uh, 2011 Mike Trout. Yeah. So if anyone wants to know about one of my biggest mistakes in the hobby, this is it. So. Back in 2011, my dad looked at the set of cards and realized the diamond anniversary is going to be something special because Tops never really did anything like that throughout their history. I mean, they had the gold border cards. Uh, they introduced the refractor cards in the 90s, but there was nothing like the diamond set. So 
me and my dad went out there and started collecting all the short prints, all the main rookies of that set. It was like 700, 800 cards. I even did like the online stuff and got, got those die cuts. But we didn't buy one player in 2011 because his card was like already $75. And we're like, oh, that's so expensive for a modern era card. We're not going to buy that. It's going to go down next year. We didn't buy the Mike Trout. So you didn't buy you didn't buy Mike Trout. Yeah. So I bought got the whole set, but the Mike Trout, which was $75 back then. And the Diamond Anniversary Mike Trout. Yeah, the one that now goes for like 20k. So just just a touch higher. But but that was yeah. Like you Almost said, set, nobody was really hot on modern baseball. This is, I mean, yeah. $75 not, for back then was a lot for someone who played not even a full season. Yeah. Different, different market all, all together. Yeah. Now it's like Jason Dominguez, Bowman Chrome, $300 PS, PSA and, 10. Dude isn't coming up to the pros for like another two years, three years, maybe even. Yeah. And people always going back there like, dang, I wish I could have bought trout rookies for 20, $30. You got to remember how expensive mantle cards were back then, how expensive any of the tobacco cards. It was a completely different hobby. You look at trout at $30, like, damn, I wish I bought that. But you look at everything else and how it's scaled. So many cards were cheaper back then as well. Um, it just it shows how far the hobby has grown. And as players develop, their cards are going to be more expensive. It makes sense. But back then, you probably wouldn't have bought the card for $30, $40. It was expensive compared to other players. I mean, and back in 2011, even the all-star cards of some of the better players in the game were still dollar $2. It was already 10 X those. So it was really, really hyped up as a prospect. I mean, Harper was as well. Harper cards and Strasburg was very, yeah. very expensive. Um, back then. I mean, they cooled down compared to trial obviously, but they were just as expensive and people didn't go after them. And I went after the wrong mic back then. So I did dabble a little bit in modern cards in 2010 because there was a player that was hitting home runs, that I've never seen me and my dad have never seen anything like that with sports. And we're like, this guy's going to be something special. Mike so Stan. we bought Mike's dancing cards. We got nice. autograph cards, like number to 25 and 50. We got his black border cards. We found a rare, no foil card. Um, tops just didn't print out foil on the card. I haven't seen anything like that from a Stanton. Um, don't know where we got it from, but we have that um, in total, like 500 or 600 Stanton cards, uh, all low okay. numbered and everything like that. So I'm hoping he pops off. I think he will because when, when he hit that 59 home run season, man, I wish the hobby was alive because I could have cashed out then. Uh, back then with all the hype, those cards were worth like $40,000, $50,000. And that was before everyone flew into the hobby because of COVID. Just yeah. imagine if he had that season today, how much his cards would be going up. Was that 2017? I think 2017, yeah. And that was back then. Yeah. It was like 30000 40000 I think Stan's, you know, a couple of like under – undervalued guys right now i think stanton's one of them judge is up there with bellinger and such yeah. but stanton and then you know we didn't talk about him earlier with all the talk about san diego but manny machado people just don't <laughs> like manny machado but like if you look at his production he's the youngest he's the highest ranked youngest player on the all-time war list and he's 27 so he's sitting in his prime years right now People aren't going to pitch to Tatis a lot of the time, and Machado is going to be hitting right behind him with Hosmer behind him. I think he's up poised for a really big season. So you know who the second player I invested in? Manny, Manny Machado. Machado. <laughs> I have his I have his Bowman Chrome number to five as a PSA ten. I have one of one autos. I have a few of his printing plates from thirteen. Like I probably have three hundred, four hundred of his low numbered stuff as well. Wow. Got all those oh, ready man. back then. 
Because I was like, because we were looking, me and my dad looked at him at age 19. We're like, why is everyone forgetting over sleeping over him? Everyone was so hot on Harper. And we looked at Machado's production. Like Machado is just as good. And the funny thing is everyone's still high on Harper. Machado has better stats than Harper and they're the same age. Yeah. Harper has like 34 war. I was surprised. Harper has 34. Yeah. 34 war compared to about 41 war. Uh, Same amount of home runs. Machado has more hits. I think about the same or higher batting average. Yep. Um, more gold gloves. Harper just has the MVP. People need to look at the stats instead of the hype behind players because they'd realize how many market gaps there is out there by the gaps. Machado is that guy. Not saying it just because I have so many of his low numbered cards, right? But Machado is that hey, you were transparent. Player. You got your you got your nest egg there. That's all good. But yeah, I agree. Like I I I owned no Manny Machado. I talked about this openly a couple weeks ago on the on the card cast. And I was like, Hey, this is just what I see looking at the stats, like Manny. And I picked up like an SGC 10 of his tops rookie for like 50 bucks. I'm like, That's it. it makes no sense why it's so cheap. Yeah. Which is SGC 10 of a Harper. What? Like 150, 200 probably. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Manny's PSA tens are going for 140 ish right now. Maybe they're a little higher. I haven't looked at them in last week. So I just picked up a couple of quick value plays, a little Bowman gold in there. I'm like, they were like under, they were under 10 bucks a piece. I'm like for a Bowman gold in decent condition from yeah. 20, um, 2010, yeah, 2010. Yeah. yeah. That should be another topic too. I know we probably don't have enough time, but talking about the grading disparities between SGC, Beckett, like HGA, PSA, I think it's, I think it's kind of crap that what the market's done with all the different companies. I mean, there's yeah. so many of the different graders go from company to company. Um, the same people are grading your cards. All it is, is a slap. Buy the buy the card. Don't buy the grade. At the end of the day, what matters, the card or the grade? I'd rather buy a nicer card with a lower grade. Yeah, I've been I've talked about this openly too, but I buy SGC at 50-60% of a PSA, crack it, send it to sub it to PSA because you can it's just a value play that makes complete sense to me when you look at the the comparables. And in your your vintage guy. SGC more than holds its own weight in the vintage world. Exactly. The fact that that hasn't converted to to the modern world. I know they kind of ran their mouths and you know talk smack and all that stuff. And like nothing compared to what HGA is doing right now. But like I, I just I th- I think that people might be missing the boat a little bit on SGC. And certainly if you have if you're buying vintage, you have less than a month turnaround with SGC. They a lot of vintage cards look great in that tuxedo slab. Um, so take it for what it's worth. I think it's a good value play. You're looking at 25 bucks a card now for a yeah. month turnaround. That's, that's the best deal in the market Nothing. right now. CSG is comparable, I guess, but and they are unproven. People don't like the slab, the, the label more than the slab itself. You know, I, I love that there's more competition in grading. And I think that now with PSA's price change, it just opens those doors where it's like not everything goes to PSA because you really have to think more harder about what you're subbing to them if you're going to get the right value out of it. Yeah. So I was going to say, I like CSG. Um, I talked to their two head graders. They actually came from Beckett and Beckett. I've always viewed as like the second or uh, first or second just depends on what you want to grade, whether vintage yeah. or like modern autos. Um, yeah. The PSA and Beckett are pretty much the same at that level. But um, CSG got the two of their top graders. So they already have the establishment. 
And then they also have the coin grading already and the comics. They're not a random startup that came up overnight. The company that I'm not too big of a fan of, and I know everyone's been talking crazy about them, is HGA. Um, I think people are kind of buying fool's gold with that. And don't be wrong, I don't know their entire processes, but they keep saying, oh, we do AI generating or AI grading, but no one's seen a video of any of their grading processes. They're not being transparent. All they're doing is saying buzzwords out there and promoting in Facebook groups. We don't know who their graders are. Um, They don't say like, oh, we hired a top PSA grader or a top Beckett grader to help grow our company. All we know, they could be building out these slabs in their garage and using Microsoft uh, or like Photoshop to go out there and design these slabs themselves. And then we saw that they made an error calculating. If they had AI systems built in place, they'd already know, okay, add these up automatically and then spit out the number. Any basic coder, and I have electrical engineering background. I did a lot of coding in college. Any basic coder would have been able to set that up in their system where, okay, let's add the four, divide by four. Awesome. This is the number that's going to be displayed on the slab. Very, very basic. This is like first year entry level stuff. So if they have an AI generating software that's grading these things, I don't really believe that. And the other thing I don't really believe is if you take a look at some of their Jerry Rice's from 1986, things that are getting eights and nines should be like fours or fives if they're a PSA or a Beckett or SGC or even CSG. Um, if you look at how rough their edges are, if you look at the pop report of nines of that Jerry Rice, it's very low and it's low for a reason because yeah. 86 chipped a lot, but HGA is giving out nines so often. So I don't really buy this whole hype behind the brand. For all I know, they could be out of someone's garage and that they're doing all the labels then and saying, oh, we have AI generating uh, grades, right? Perfect. And they look at the cards themselves and just say, okay, this eight half, cool. This is nine, cool. Something that everyone complained about GMA about because they just slapped random numbers on their cases. HGA could be at the same exact side of things. So I wouldn't really uh, be going with that right now, especially when you have established companies. Yeah, I, I proceed with caution, right? I think the sample size needs to be bigger. I, I've said the same thing about SGC, where I think for with the modern side of SGC, there just needs to be like a little more liquidity in the market, more volume available. It's a I, time will tell. I think there needs to be more transparency. They preach transparency, but yet show the process. If you're going to say you're doing something computer graded, people are really actually interested in that. And I think they've done themselves a disservice by not showing that because. If they were to show it, if it were the words being said were true, people would be sending more cards in, actually. I think it would be a positive marketing campaign, but they haven't capitalized on that. That's really odd to me. And I think enough podcasters and the content creators, I mean, they've reached out. Um, Mike Geo from Sports Card Nonsense. I know John Newman from um, Sports Card Nation has thrown the, the lure in the water of like, hey, show it. Let's talk. Let's go through this stuff together. Like, the, the opportunity is there, but they, they haven't followed through on that. And instead, they've got this like peculiar antagonistic social media profile that strives to be like Wendy's. And it's like, Wendy's is Wendy's. They're an established food chain, like in competition against others. You guys are brand new. Don't play that game. That's it, it's it's embarrassing, frankly. It is. I mean. You're going against companies that have been established in the 90s or 2000s. They have 20, 30 years of grading experience. You guys are not not to say that they are, but they could be out of a garage and we don't even know. They've shown no, they should have no pictures of the process. We don't know who the graders are. We don't know who runs this company. And it came out overnight. It wasn't like, all right, 
we're launching this company in three months. This is our whole process behind it. This is why we're launching it. It just came up immediately. Boom. There we go. And it was posted in a bunch of Facebook groups all at once. And people started hyping it up because of that. That's I, I think the point with, with HGA and where they go in the future is up to them to decide. I wish them all the best. Competition's great. Their slabs look cool. Like I've like, there's a, a pink slab I saw the other day. I think it was actually a Tatis. I was like, Oh my God. Like, it's gorgeous. I I will not knock them for their slabs. They're they're really I agree really with nice. that. I, I think that I think that's something that they've added that a lot of other companies haven't. The customization of the slabs. I think they've added a lot more elements that other companies just had very basic uh, with mm-hmm. it. And I, I've seen a HGA slab in person. They felt sturdy as well. They had good material with that. Yeah, and they're hitting their turnaround times. So I applaud them that they're scaling methodically. I think just. To show this, I'm systems. worried about the long term value. <laughs> yeah, but there's so many companies that go in and out. Like you have GAI, you have like these Pro 10 or Gem 10 companies out there, the mint companies, and you know, just over time, nothing with that. Right on, Ryan. Well, I appreciate the time you spent with us today. I, I want to talk a, to finish up. I want to talk about content creation, what you're doing with breakout sports, and what we where we can find you. What can we expect from you? in the future beyond the card show, obviously, but you've got a YouTube channel. What are you guys up to at breakout sports and where are you going? Yeah. So every week I try to upload videos based on like past sets, uh, investment type cards, which I think are undervalued. Like I've talked about Machado in the past. I've talked about CJ Abrams and others. I'm also going out there every single weekend and going to a card show. So in Florida, there's like five or six different card shows out there. So I'm driving out every single weekend, two, three hours to a card show getting videography there, talking to dealers, coming back, shooting those videos and editing it. Um, it takes a lot of time. And, you know, I'm trying to build up the channel, be one of those people that go out there and give as much content as possible to people, uh, just helping get, grow the hobby, get people in there, seeing that card shows are fun. It's not like dealers aren't horrible people. They're willing to work with you. They have their own histories. Um, and, the, you know, there's a stigma that dealers are, oh, they're going to only give you 20% of book value or they're not going to trade with you or they're going to be way over eBay. And there's some that do that. Don't get me wrong. Like yeah. there's people that'll be like, oh, this card is $800. And you look at eBay comp and it's $500. You're like, what the hell, man? Or you try sell- selling them something, they'll give you like 10 cents on the dollar. But most of these dealers are just like you and I. They they love the hobby. They want to see it grow. They're willing to work with you. And they're great people. And just kind of showing that through the videos, like, look, this is what I picked up this weekend. Uh, these are this different cards. This is the history behind those cards. This is the show. If you live in this area, go out to the show, support your local card show, support these dealers that are out there, put food on their table, put food out there and help out other individuals. Um, but content like that, and I think it really helps out with the industry. Uh, you can find me out on YouTube, which is Breakout Sports Cards. And also I have an Instagram and a website as well, breakoutsportscards.com. On the website, I also post a lot more articles year by year, like Tops, Bowman. Um, like right now, I'm finishing the Gaudi series with that. I love it. Yeah, I noticed that you were showing some showing some of your, your process there. And, you know, I, I love that. You got the grow the pie mentality, showing the fun that you can have at card shows. I completely agree. I think more the merrier. We need to continue to grow the hobby. Card shows are where the kids can connect with the hobby. I see, like you say, as the pandemic winds down, I see just growing popularity and I have got a six-year-old that I love taking out to card shows and he has a time of his life. He's a Pokemon collector. So that's uh, we got, we got to tend to that and, and bring it to a new generation. So 
I appreciate the time you've spent with me tonight, Ryan. Um, certainly look forward to connecting with you more in the future, helping you grow your channel. I'm super grateful for spending time tonight with me. Appreciate it. Hey, no problem. I'd love to see you out there. And thanks for inviting me on. I really appreciate doing this. It's fun. Cheers. Man, it feels good to be back in the saddle. Big shout out to Ryan for reaching out uh, and connecting out there on Twitter. Check him out at Breakout Cards underscore Breakout Sports over on YouTube. Thank you very much for hanging out with us at the card table.